All right, welcome to the WP Radio podcast. You're going to enjoy this podcast today. It's uh, the Archon Forensic Engineers podcast. It's Guess What I Learned Today. We had Mike Potvan on today. He's amazing. Um, fire investigator. He's from the OFM. He worked in uh, Crime Stoppers. Really great podcast. Great interview. Um, hope you enjoy it and uh, leave us some comments. All right, welcome everybody uh, to the WP Radio Broadcast Show, and uh, today's podcast, I have Mr. Mike Potman from Archon Forensic Engineering. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, Terry. Thank you, uh, and glad to be a part of your uh, your show with us this week. Excellent. Well, before we kind of get into the show itself and some questions I have for you, I understand you have an amazing background in fire investigation, and I wanted you to kind of just tell me and everyone on the show here that's listening in kind of where you come from and uh, how you ended up at Archon. Well, it's a long story, and hopefully we can get it over here in an hour's time. But uh, <laughs> just uh, quite frankly, uh, I spent 10 years, uh, just over 10 years with the Ontario Provincial Police uh, postings in Elliott Lake. And actually, I did my first fire investigation while I was in Elliott Lake. I uh, called the fire marshal's office, and uh, they couldn't come out because uh, it wasn't that uh, one of those fires that that qualified for them to come out. So I did it on my own. It was a a uh, hunter's cabin in the middle of nowhere. So that kind of intrigued me, I guess, at the at the start. Um, from there, I moved on to Thunder Bay and uh, was still doing a, a lot of uh, police work there, general law duties. And then I got into the Crime Stopper program. And again, I got into assisting the uh, uh, the police officers there with Thunder Bay and OPP as well as IPCB, uh, an investigator that they had at the time with regards to arson investigations. So I, I got intrigued with that. And from there, I joined the fire marshal's office in 1998 and uh, spent 23 years with the fire marshal's office, 19 years in fire investigations, investigated fires all over the province, fly-ins in northern Ontario, uh, all over the province from Windsor to... Um, to Ottawa, places in between. Uh, the first month I went to Windsor and Hawkesbury twice, so back and forth across the province, thousands of kilometers investigating any, anything from a shed fire to a multi-million dollar loss. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, it was a good career there, and now I'm on the private side working for Archon and uh, really intrigued what how the private side of the industry works. Yeah, it's 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 different but the same kind of, I think. But I do have a question for you. You said the OFM didn't respond because it didn't meet the requirements. Do they have a set of requirements that that uh, gets them involved in a fire? Yeah, with the fire marshal's office, they have criteria that's set out for fire departments around the, around the province in which they have to call them on. And so basically it's anytime there's an explosion or there's a large loss over $500,000 or there's a, a fire where there's fatality, then those are a must where the fire department has to call the OFM and the police, they can call at any time, too, when there's a, a potential arson investigation, then they can call the OFM and uh, get the assistance uh, in that regard. A lot of police services don't have that. A lot of the smaller fire departments don't have that. So the government offers that at no cost to police services and um, and fire departments across the province. Now, <laughs> that doesn't mean they're going to go to all of them because they only have so many people. And, and they they look at the ones where there's there's a public interest um, where they're going to benefit from some type of a, uh, a conclusion where it's going to assist with a public fire safety issue. Excellent. Well, that being said, now in the OFM or the Ontario Fire Marshal's Office, I'm sure you have to do all sorts of training, right? And now, does it mirror or is it the same as what you would do as a private fire investigator? Is it different? Is there different levels? Can we talk about that? Well, I, I don't know if there's there's uh, different levels, but I can speak, you know, for the for the public side for sure. Where there's a an, a learning process that goes on, you know, and it's going to start right from when the person starts. They're with a coach officer. They're training to ten thirty three with regards to uh, the job requirements of a fire investigator. They're going to go through those processes. They're going to hopefully go to all those fire investigations that they're going to meet those job performance requirements. And that's going to be at least a minimum of a year. Some of them now are a year and a half before they make meet those JPRs, uh, you know, under NFPA 1033. And so once they do that, then they have a sign off and there's all different processes in between that they have to, that they have to go through to 
you know, appease their supervisor, to meet, to appease the people in the quality assurance group, as well as their manager and their assistant deputy fire marshal before they're allowed to start going out and doing fires on their own. I know when I was in the field, when I was first starting out, I, w- I was able to go out and do fires on my own after six, seven months, but I wasn't really comfortable until that two and a half, three year period was, hey, I got it. I know what needs to be done. I know the processes. But you still have that training component. The fire marshal's office trains at least a minimum two twi- two times a year um, at the Ontario Fire College. Now that that the fire college is closed, but they still maintain they'll still maintain that training, and uh, you know two weeks a year. Plus, there's other courses that they will take um, that's outside um, outside the the OFM that will help them keep up their credentials in their field. Interesting. Now. Um, you you said NFPA nine or sorry ten thirty three. Now that's different yeah. than nine twenty one. Nine twenty one is the guideline or the standard that you go about doing the investigation. Correct? Yes, that's it. That's what the guideline is nine twenty one. Um, it's you still get tested to it. You can still get your CFEI certified fire and explosion investigator. Um, you know certificate from taking their test. Um. But there's a lot of people, they just, they can take their one week, two week course and they take the test and then they can get their certification where 1033, I think is a little bit more involved in the OFM. They take it a little bit further with the processes. And so that when, when they're done, you know, that you've, you've got what it takes, you've got the qualifications and the experience, you know, that when you're handed that piece of paper that, you know, says that you're certified. So in one you're tested to a standard that's NFPA 1033. The other one you're tested to a guideline and they go hand in hand because you can use the guideline to assist you with getting your JPRs. So 1033 is actually a standard of fire investigation. That's right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I didn't know what the difference was. Now I do. So I'm sure some of our guests will know, or our listeners will, uh, will appreciate that as well. So now you've come over to Archon and, uh, Fire investigation is a big part of the insurance industry, I'm sure you're aware, um, from dealing with fire investigators in your job as the OFM and now in Archon. Um, What are the first things an adjuster needs to do when they're thinking about retaining a fire investigator? So they've got a new fire loss, be it a home or an auto or even a commercial building. What's the first things they need to do before they should even consider bringing on a fire investigator? Well, I think the the process, they need to, first of all, they need to know the process of a fire investigation. So if they don't know the processes, then they're going to have to get what a fire investigator will need at the start of any type of fire investigation. What is it that they're looking for? Are they looking at the origin and cause of the fire? Are they looking at, you know, subrogation issues? What is it that they have that they're going to investigate? Is it a vehicle fire? Is it an industrial fire? Is it a residential fire? Who are the occupants? Uh, who are the owners? Um, so they have to, you know, bring all this information um, forward and see what is it that they're actually going to be looking for. What at 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 the end of the day, as far as um, as what's going to meet their requirements and what they have to do on the insurance side of things. Are they going to segregate? Are they going to pay the loss? Um, or are they are they not going to pay uh, pay out on the loss? Now, as the insurance industry is, I'm sure you're becoming quite aware of, um, we in the industry, we look at all sorts of things, right? We look at it, like you said, from the subrogation end. We also look at from the defense end. So we may have somebody that's trying to subrogate against us and we need an investigator to go out and provide, you know, their opinion on what they see. Um, So... Is it better to have a lot of information from the adjuster from day one, or do you like to go out to the scene and kind of um, look at the scene kind of in its raw image and then go from there? What what works best for you? Well, when you look at what's required, the, the minimum requirements that a fire investigator is going to be using as far as their processes, as far as how they're going to investigate a fire. And you follow these guidelines and they're in NF, they're in NFP, NFP 921, 1033, Kirk's fire investigation, and uh, as well as Lentini's and um, uh, fire investigation book. And there's processes that you have to follow and there's the scientific method. So if you can take the adjuster down the scientific method with regards to what processes a fire investigator needs to follow, then they'll understand 
you know, what we're looking for and what we need as far as investigation uh, goes. So number one, you know, you get the, the something happens, right? So there's a fire. And so that's basically the first step in, in, in the process. Then number two, what resources are you going to need to investigate that fire? Right. Um, as, as far as you could need heavy equipment, you could need someone to do an asbestos abatement. You could need, um, you know, someone who's going to be looking at air quality was a runoff. So all these other different things that come into play, like these are multidisciplinary uh, things that you have to look at uh, in, in fire investigation. And at the end of the day, um, you're going to look, you're going to need the data, get as much data as you can. And one of the things that you need when you're gathering the data is you need witness information. So right at the get-go, it's good to have the names of the witnesses um, that are going to come into play that the fire investigator is going to want to speak to with regards to his findings. So whether you get it at the start or get it at the end, the evidence that you get is going to either corroborate what you find at the scene or not going to corroborate because the scene is going to tell you a lot of the story, but sometimes you need that little bit of extra information that an eyewitness can give you with regards to the origin and possible cause of the fire. So they kind of go, they kind of go uh, hand in hand when you're looking at, you know, data um, going into the fire scene or data while you're at the fire scene or data while you're after, after the fire scene. So your hypotheses could change throughout with regards to the origin and cause uh, of the fire investigations. As you get new information, it could be leading you into a different direction, but at the same time, you still got to be able to follow those processes with regards to where you need to go and coming up with the end result. So is it better for the adjuster, examiner, or anybody on the insurance side to get the investigator out onto the scene as soon as possible so evidence hasn't been lost, damaged, moved, displaced? Well, the sooner the better, and sometimes that that's not the case, but that's always ideas. The sooner you get there, the better, especially when you're in inclement weather in the wintertime or even the summertime and you got rains coming, snow coming, you know, you get there one day in the wintertime and everything is fine um, and, and you're not going to that scene and the next day you're there and it's covered in two, three feet of snow, depending on where you are sure. in the province. But, you know, <laughs> so it's always better to get someone there sooner. And there's, you know, other evidence that could deteriorate while you're waiting to go there. You know, I was just at a fire investigation fire investigation that I was signed to on Friday and waited up until today to get there because we had to wait for other players to come into place with regards to conducting a joint investigation. So in the meantime, if the place is all boarded up and secure, that's not really going to to affect the processes. But when it's not and, and people are allowed access, and that may play a role in and people moving things around, uh, interviewing witnesses, the sooner the better. So it's always better, but if you can't and you can board it up, secure the scene, then that's good too. Yeah. Now you talked about joint investigations. Can you give the listeners an idea of what a joint investigation may involve? Do you mean yourself and the police or the fire marshal's office, or do you mean other fire investigators? Yeah, generally in the private uh, sector here, we're following <laughs> We may be following the police or the fire marshal's office into a fire investigation. So we may want to speak to them with regards to did they touch anything? Did they move anything with regards to um, any type of appliance or if it's a, a vehicle, did they move it? Uh, what did they do to it? Uh, did they take something apart um, in their in a home? Did they um, take all the um, take all the uh, furnishings and appliances out and what did they do with them? Because you know, you always want to, if you can, replace the furniture and, and the furnishings and whatever it is back in to try and help you lay out where the fire started and how the fire spread in a particular um, apartment, home, dwelling, um, whatever building it is. Now, on the private side, it's a little bit different, I'm learning, and that is the people that you're working with are other fire investigators who are on for other adjusters, who are on for other insurance companies. So now, everyone kind of has their own um, role in, in what they're doing as far as the, the um, what, who they're getting their information for. Are they getting the information for the owner where the fire started? Are they getting the information for, for an occupant? Are they getting the information for someone who suffered or sustained you know, damage that was a result of a fire 
and another property that caused damage to their property. So, you know, so it's a, it's a little bit different on the private side than on the, on the public side. Yeah. It's multi-pronged for sure. Now, um, when you get into a scene or you've been into a scene now on the private side and you get in and you see an area has been cleared away and you know that that's been done by the OFM or a fire, uh, fire personnel, um, do you have an opportunity to, to follow up with the, you know, the people from the OFM or the fire department to find out why they cleared that area or what they removed from that area? Is that something that they'll be able to tell you or, or is there those Pepita rules that kind of apply and it's, you know, it slows down the process? Because I'm sure it was different when you were on the other side and you would kind of first kick at the can. Yeah, so having first kick at the can was always great. Sure. Coming from the other <laughs> side where you don't get first kick at the can is sometimes, you know, a little bit problematic in trying to find out that information, that data. And so we work, uh, I, I, I still able to call up a, a fire investigator or a fire department. I have been since I started with Archon. And I'll ask them, you know, what did they move? What did they touch? Was there any um, examination of an exhibit where they may have taken it out of part? or you know, stuff like that, that they take any samples and they're pretty upfront, you know, as long as it's not a scene where it's going to, it could be potential um, going along the, a, a criminal Avenue, sure. then it's fine. They'll share that type of information. And I would expect that too, when, you know, I may be assigned to go to an investigation where a little time isn't involved, police aren't involved, fire department went and did their thing and following up with the fire department, uh, you know, with what they did. And then, of course, then you've got the the other private fire investigators that were at a fire scene, and they may have moved stuff around. And then you can call them up and say, hey, you know, what did you do um, to assist me with regards to anything that you may have touched, moved, examined? And normally that information is shared. They're not gonna, they may not tell you how it started or what their opinion is, but at least they'll share some of that information because they've moved something around or they've done something that, you know, they've altered the scene. And you didn't have that opportunity or that avenue to be there when that was done. So I think it's only in fairness that they will share that. They may not share it, but I haven't run across that yet. But I haven't with Archon uh, uh, that long of a time. I've had people come to me from the scenes that I've been to and, you know, ask me what I've done. And, I, and I've shared that with them. So yeah. it's kind of, a, I, I think, a give and take. We're not giving up, you know, all of our secrets on how the fire started or where it started. Um, but they should be able to come up with some type of opinion, but at least we share that information in the event we did move something around or alter it in any way. So it's really just confirming placement of evidence that was there or, or a piece of debris. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, um, there was, there's a scientific method that you guys use as fire investigators and, and that's the 921, correct? Or is it 921 and 1033? Is it, is it a combination of both? Well, the scientific method is found throughout many texts, right? It's just not just to, like it's used in, 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 in fire investigation, but it's used in other things too, in, in general life and how to figure out, you know, something that went awry, what was the problem? And here's your hypotheses, you know, an educated guess as to, you know, what happened. You know, for an example, you got a light bulb in your living room that's burnt out. And the first thing you're going to do is, is see if the light bulb's burning. If it's not that, then you try the switch. If it's not that, then is it plugged in? And so all these things are, so you look at the plug, you look at the switch, you look at the bulb, you put the bulb in, uh, it's the bulb. So so it's a process that you, that's a simplified process. So, sure. and you look at, so you look at it in, in that regard. So it's a systematic approach in how you conduct an investigation. And we use the scientific method. Everybody should be using the scientific method so that we're all following the same processes when we're coming to our conclusions in a fire investigation. So if an adjuster was to see something that didn't refer to the 921 guidelines or they just kind of made observations unrelated to that guideline, how would they know or what would they know to look for? What should, they, what should an adjuster be, be looking for when they're reviewing a fire investigator's report that would, you know, help them lend credence to what they're reading? Well, I, I I think that's where they're going to be. Uh, they, they need that general knowledge, like uh, what an investigator is actually looking for in a particular scene at a particular occurrence. Um, they have to have 
some type of knowledge with regards to the 921 processes with regards to the scientific method. So did the investigator speak to the occupants? Did the investigator speak to speak to the owners? Did the investigator get the information from the fire service when they were first on scene? Did they um, conduct a scene examination in accordance to NFPA 921, in accordance to 1033, in accordance to other texts that are out there with regards to how to conduct a fire investigation? So I think the best thing, if they're looking at a report and they're thinking, you know, what do I need? I think they should call an investigator to help sure. in that process. <laughs> so because yeah, they're the ones who are, you know, have the knowledge and the education with regards to investigating fires. So every adjuster, every examiner, everybody in the industry is going to get their first fire, right? And they're not going to know what to look for or what to tell the investigator. So do you have a few basic steps or points that you could, you know, point out that would say, hey, listen, if you get a fire, the first thing you want to do is collect this information and give it to the fire investigator. So when you're, you know, when you have it ready for the fire investigator, so when you're reaching out to make your request, um, you at least have the basics. So what would the basics be? Yeah, so when the adjuster, you know, gets the assignment and it's their first assignment, they'll want to know what type of structure they have, how much damage is there, um, what resources uh, potentially they take a good guess at it, what they're going to need as far as investigating that fire. And, you know, when it comes down to, you know, the end of the day, did they gather information for the investigator on the occupants, on the owners? Um, were they able to solidify anything from the police department? Were they anything able to solidify anything from the fire department? So any information that they can glean is going to be helpful to the investigation. Excellent. So, and, and again, I would assume it's just much like any other claim where an adjuster is assigning an expert, right? The expert needs some basic knowledge of what he's going to go, where he's going, what he's going to see, and the type of thing that they're looking for. So, it, for the most part, I would believe that the adjuster would be working with a supervisor or some type of mentor that would be directing them when they reach out to their first fire investigator to say, hey, listen, I've got X fire at this house. You know, it happened overnight. Uh, no one was home, but the fire from all intents and purposes grew really rapidly in one area of the house um, and then spread throughout the entire house. You know, is that a good starting point or what else should they have? Yeah, so that seems to be the case when you have either someone who is new at the business or someone who is old at the business. And again, it depends on what type of fire occurrence you're going to have. Sure. You're right, because, you know, a, a fire investigation can involve many, many different um, things that you're going to have to look at with regards to the size of the building, what was in the building, um, what, the, what did the occurrence involve? Was it an explosion? Is it a large loss? Um, was it an older building? Um, you know, what were the different? What was the building being used for? What was it designed for? So you got all these different things that that come into play. And was there something possibly that was done in human error, or was it done intentionally? So they all these are all different things that they should be bouncing back and forth. And at the same time, phone an investigator. They yeah. can help them out with those processes. And I can see that happening where we can educate. We are educating adjusters. You know, this is what you have. This is what we can get for you. Um, this is what we have. This is what we can get for you to ask your your client or the insured with regards to some of the information that we're still looking for. So I think it's a really good, uh, a good segue into working together, having that relationship with the adjuster, sharing the information back and forth to get the end result, whether it, it, it helps in, and uh, paying the the, the uh, paying the claim or not paying the claim or you know subrogating against uh, someone else. Yeah, and, and and I think you'll agree with me. I mean, sometimes we get told as adjusters from the you know, the homeowner, you know, like, yeah, this is my primary residence. You know, I live here, and then you know the fire investigator, you know, gets out on site first. Because the adjuster, you know, it's wherever it's located. And, you know, you guys seem to go on the drop of a hat, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, you get out there and you realize, well, no, this is a rooming house. And there's little stoves everywhere. 
uh, cooking cooktop stoves or whatever it is, right? And it's just different from what the adjuster was advised. So, I mean, it's always great to be able to give you some foresight into what you th we think you're going to see when we get to a site. But, I mean, we all know that that does change from time to time. And, you know, um, sometimes people aren't so truthful in the front. And, you know, um, you know, it's not until the evidence speaks for itself or you guys find something that just totally changes the direction of the adjuster's investigation or the policy investigation. I mean, there's there's so many things that I find uh, being involved in dealing with these types of claims that just once we have you out there and I get a phone call from you guys going, hey, this ain't what you think it is, it changes the whole dynamic of the claim moving forward. Yeah, and that's what I've experienced over time in my uh, many, many years with the fire marshal's office. You know, you get that call and you're supposed to be, you know, looking at something that's accidental and you get there, oh no, we got more information. They, you have the scene examination and you're looking at different things with regards to, you know, heat intensity and fire moving patterns. They don't quite line up with what the, the homeowner or the occupant was saying. So so now you're going back and you're, and you're kind of testing that, that hypothesis and other hypotheses are coming up. And so then you have these different theories that you're going to be working with. And you can test them too with regards to the information that you have. And you know very, very well that um, some people may not want to say something at the start because they're afraid. They're afraid they did something wrong and now they're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times they may be in trouble, but that's okay because that's what their insurance is for. And then you let the insurance companies worry about other things when it comes to segregation. So then you try and explain that to some people, then they'll be more forthcoming with regards to giving you the information that you're looking for so that every, so that there's a good, a good end result. And I think that's when you look at people, you know, like myself and, and a lot of the other fire investigators who come with that investigative background where we have that good um, dealings, the good um, work, working relationships and how to communicate with people as a police officer, you deal with all, you know, walks of life and you have to communicate with, you know, a, a kid who is going to school or, you know, someone who is homeless or uh, even someone who, you know, is well to do and something has happened to them. You know, they've lost somebody, uh, uh, you know, so you've got all these different things that an, an investigator, a good investigator um, can assist with regards to finding out that information. And like you say, the more information and the more people you talk to is going to change things more than likely throughout your investigation. Yeah, your scene is going to remain the same because it's systematic. You know that you follow the processes, you've undercovered everything, you've got all the data that you need to support your hypotheses or different hypotheses. There's, there's going to be more than one. But these statements that you get from independent witnesses um, may assist in you know, solidifying just one hypothesis that's going to say, okay, this is how things happen. This is how they occurred. And this is the end result. Yeah. And, and I want to speak to the fact that, you know, some people, you know, the nosy neighbor or the passersby that come up and give you evidence that, you know, for all intents and purposes, the end of the day is either really good information or is a red herring, as they would say, you know, that, Hey, this may have happened in the neighborhood, you know, and you should be looking at these as all possible, you know, fires that evolved. Uh, maybe there's an arsonist in the neighborhood and they they, they create that kind of a, a sense, right? So, but you have, I, I'm assuming as a fire investigator, you have to run all that down, right? Just to, you know, either confirm it or deny it, I would assume, yeah, right? That's right. So that's step three of the scientific method where you gather the data, right? People bring you information, you go out and you get information. And if you don't do these things, then you're not following the scientific method. You're not, you know, you're not gathering all the data and you, and you can take the data for what it's worth. Right. But you don't use it to try and, um, you know, say, this is, this is what I have. And you use it to prove it. Like, you know, that's negative corpus. You need it to support the evidence that you have. It either will or will not. So you can't use it in, a, in like that negative context. Yeah. So it's not not what I'm. Uh, maybe I was wrong in what I said. It's not a negative, but it's it's either there. It's going to support your hypothesis or it's not. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, so 
let, let's talk about some fires that you've done since you've, and, and I don't need claim numbers or who you were working for, but let's just talk in generality of some fires that you've done since you've come into the industry. Uh, I know you've done some garage fires, some car fires, a boat fire, um, some residential stuff. How are you finding it as far as when you get to the scene as a secondary, you're no longer the OFM. Um, is it different in ways that you go about doing your investigation or is it, is it basically the same? You know, it's basically the same. You're still, you're still gathering the information. You're still gathering the data. When you get there, you're, you're following the systematic approach. Just the way you gather the information is going to be a little bit more different. Now the fire marshal's office only investigates 500 fires, maybe a year in the province of Ontario. Okay. There's 8,000, you know, fires in the province it's gone from 10 to 8,000 over the last you know five or six years or I think it's 10 years a 10 year span it's gone from 10 to there's 8,000 fires where there's a dollar lost to property in the province then you include your forest fires and and your vehicle fires so you're up to around 10,000 fires in the province you know every year that's and there's a lot of fires 500 that the fire marshal's office does so you got the rest of those fires where you leave it up to the fire department where most of the time they don't have the resource of the education um, and the the experience to investigate fires. So now they're going to leave it up to someone else to come along and investigate. So they'll leave it up to the insurance people. So when we get there, I'm finding that most of the times the fire is left the way it was. So there's only going to be on occasion where someone else is going to have been into the fire and disturbed everything. So that, so that, Kind of makes it a little bit easier when things aren't disturbed and there's only going to be you know that select few where things are going to be disturbed prior to the private investigator you know getting there but absolutely the processes are saying there's a systematic approach there's you're following the scientific method you're gathering the information you're looking at the data um with regards to developing a hypothesis then you develop your hypotheses and then you've got to test your hypothesis then you select one it's all the same thing just gathering the information is going to be a little bit different. So I would assume that there's no difference between looking at a residential, commercial, a household appliance, a vehicle, farming or industrial equipment. Basically, you follow the same process. doesn't matter what it is. That's right. And and the, the processes are going to be different the way, you, the way you, you, you talked about it. Because a vehicle fire is a vehicle fire. A house fire is a house fire. You're still looking from, you know, from the outside and going from the area of of least damage to most damage. But when you look at 921, they kind of break it out in different um, in different chapters for you. So you're dealing with a boat fire, you're dealing with a, uh, with a house or a residential fire. Um, you can be dealing with a vehicle fire. So they kind of break it down for you. But in looking at those different types of scenarios, you're still using the same process. Now, how important is it to try and get photographs of the scene before the fire to assist in your investigation yeah that's that's always key getting photographs anything before the fire is helpful uh, when you're dealing with um a home i remember when we we did it way back when when we had the you know a poor young fella died in, in a fire and uh, and there's lots of videos that in the fire marshal's office trade was on baseboard when a young fella um, died in a house fire on baseboard and and because it was federal land, we got all the resources that we needed. I remember Chris Williams was the investigator on at the time, and Chris and I were, were kind of working together, but I can't take any credit. But uh, Chris was able to use an exemplar uh, unit, a duplex, two-story duplex on the base to reconstruct how the fire developed within that, that home so you could actually see how quickly, you know, that the fire developed, you know, within that uh, – within that two-story uh, semi-detached home. And it's called, mm. no, and it's uh, the spare. And that video has been circling around forever. So then, you know, so you have that, that uh, you know, that, that experience that you can use to, to, to gather your information and get to where you need to go. So is that the term they call fire modeling? Uh, no, no, no. That's just a demonstration on how the progression of fire. Fire modeling is completely different. Fire okay. modeling is, is where you have a compartment uh, you have a fire and you take all kinds of measurements and uh, you can create you need the openings you need the the amount of fuel load in the room uh, and then you need to 
input all this data into the program, and then it then it will show you how the fire progresses. So that's uh, uh, fire modeling is very technical compared to a demonstration. They're 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 completely completely different. So this this one you were speaking about, then you were actually you actually burned the exemplar model to that's show right, how the so you actually did a a duplicate burn. A duplicate burn to show the progression of the fire wow. once it started at eight four. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that yeah. would that would account for the fire patterns and the stuff that you would see. Yeah. So when you talk about taking photos, and if we can have photos before, videos before, you know, clear, closed circuit TV is it's everywhere these days. It's sure. showing a lot of things that are happening. So we can have all that, you know, in advance. It'd be great. We may even get it later. There's always something that information that we're looking for. Um, and then even, even if we could find something that's exemplary, like let's say I got a motor home or a transport that's burnt, can we get another transport that's similar so we can see exactly what we're looking at? Um, I've looked at homes on, uh, and communities where they're the same, where you got a home that's completely burnt into the basement. Let's look at a home that's very similar to this one. So we can get a layout as to what the home was and how the fire may have progressed in that home. So if you can get all this different information, that's definitely going to help you out with regards to figuring how the fire started. Now, is that, and, uh, where it started. sorry, is that something that you would do? So if you're on a scene and you see a CCTV camera, kind of what you think would be pointing towards the home or the item that's the the cause of the or the area of the fire is that something you would go and try and obtain yourself or would you would you suggest that the adjuster or somebody else try and obtain it well because it's part of the investigation and that's the data we're, we're trying to get i would say to the adjuster say hey i've seen some closer television here i'm going to go and approach this person and see if i can get the information right so that's part of part of my process i don't think the adjuster has to be needs to do that but if the adjuster still hasn't made that decision yet to call somebody an investigator to assist then that's perhaps something they should be looking at, you know, right away. What was there so that they can solidify or, or get that evidence before the uh, before they even call a fire investigator? Because that's some of the questions I'll ask right away to an adjuster, like, was there any closed circuit TV? Was there any of this um, in, in the area? What type of neighborhood was it? Um, was this uh, was this already, uh, you know, asked for at, at the start of the investigation? Because they're they're the ones who are right at the front end. You know, getting the getting the information as part of the as a part of start of the claim. Yeah, and I've learned uh, kind of over the years that you know uh, these CCTV cameras, be it commercial or personal, have a quick override or overwrite uh, on them. So you know, sometimes you know, with big places like McDonald's or those kind of places, they save the evidence for you know a couple of years. But some of the mom and pop shops or even bigger kind of uh, family businesses. Uh, they override pretty well, you know, 24, 48 hours, 72 hours, maybe a week. But uh, but they're not – that information isn't always going to be there two weeks, three weeks down the road, right? Yeah, that's – you know, that's correct. So the sooner you can get that information, the better. Um, just recently I went to a fire where um, – multimillion-dollar fire, a lot of other uh, fire investigators involved. And um, we're at the scene doing our thing and uh, – we developed the hypotheses and we had to go back and gather more information because more information came to light. And when we were all done, I continued on gathering witnesses, uh, talking to witnesses. I drove to where a witness had taken a picture. I you know, got myself into the building and went to the ninth floor and started talking to these different people on the different floor. And it was, they'd taken photographs of the fire while it was in progress. And then from there I was able to, you know, identify more witnesses. And then at the end of the day, I had photographs of the development of the fire and it, and it basically supported my hypothesis. So don't just stop <laughs> when you're at the fire scene. If there's more information you can gather, then you should, because if you haven't, you haven't done your job. Yeah. I think witness photographs and witness information is fantastic. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. The things that people take or video or photograph these days, they're their own little, you know, fire investigator themselves. And for whatever reason, uh, everybody pulls their camera out now, right? And just starts oh, yeah. recording, you know, whether they're going to post it or they just happen to have it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a canvas of a neighborhood, you know, 10, 15, 20 doors away is a good thing because you never know what you're going to find. Yeah, that's right. And on a, on a kind of a, a funny note, this one fellow, when I knocked on his door and 
and then I introduced myself. He initially thought I was someone from the TV station wanting to buy his video. Oh. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> he was kind of disappointed, but he still gave me his information on, on one of those little sticks there. Sure. His video on a stick. Yeah. It didn't cost me anything. Yeah. Yeah, the USB sticks. Yeah, it's yeah. but it's amazing that the information you can kind of you can gather from people that don't think they have any information. I've heard that before. Oh, I have nothing that, you know that would help you. Oh, but I do have this video because I was standing there while this fire was developing and you're like, Oh, okay. Could my maybe see that? And, you know, um, you know, sometimes what you've been told is much different from what you see. Right. Right. Uh, Right. From the adjuster before you even get assigned or get on the scene. Um, now how do you feel about bringing the adjuster or the examiner or even counselor or somebody to the scene after you've done your initial investigation for them to have a better understanding of what they're seeing uh, so they can better understand the claim from their end? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I did that when I was on the, on the public side. If I could, I would. Like if there was nothing there as far as any criminality, the absolutely I'd bring them in, running through, show them what I had done. Um, if there was firefighters there, I'd show them the processes and they really liked that when they could understand like, you know, what the investigation actually entails. Like every investigation is very comprehensive. You know, you're looking at all different kinds of things when you're in a, in a, in a multi a unit building where there could have been an explosion, you know, so you're looking at, you could be looking at natural gas, you're looking at electrical, you could be looking at an older building, there's asbestos in there, there's all different kinds of things. And then I think I'm very fortunate to be working at Archon because when I was a fire investigator with the UFM, we had an engineering unit. So if I had something electrical that I needed someone to look at, I could have them look at it. If I needed someone to look at something to do with a gas system, you know, I have, have someone from, from the OFM engineering staff to do that. So it's I had really haven't left that where I'm joining Archon. I still have that support, you know, when I do go to a fire scene. Like I said, they're comprehensive. There's all different kinds of things that you have to look at when you're collecting your data to come up with the your you know your fi- final hypotheses at the end of the day. Yeah, and, I, and again, you know, I love dealing with Archon, and I, I'm glad we're doing this podcast. You know, you know what I learned today. Um, Archon brings such a deep. Um, player roster to uh, forensic engineering. I mean, you've got your electrical, your mechanical, your team, which is the fire, and then you get your civil and structural guys, and then you've got your whole technical support team, right? Um, I, I love that. You guys have been around for like 55 years. I mean, it, it's great. And, you know, now when you get stuff that you bring back from a scene and you need to have it looked at, um, you have the people right there in place, right? Like you have that, your electrical guys and your mechanical guys, it, it doesn't go out of house at all, right? It, it typically will stay inside with you guys. Yeah. So we, yeah. So we have, we have our own lab in the back where we can examine, uh, you know, whatever we need to examine there. Um, if, if we have to go outside and, and examine like a, a pipe, we have our own metallurgist, right? So in the OFM, we didn't have a metallurgist. We yeah. had one who worked at the center of forensic science. But then that person retires, so then they have to farm that out now, right? So so we don't have to at Archon. We have our own metallurgist, right, Daniel? Wow. So we're very fortunate, you know, in that regard where we have that that service, you know, also. So, yeah, we have our own lab, and we're able to do all of our own testing, you know, right in-house at, on uh, Consumers Road there in Toronto. Yeah, I mean— I've been to the I've been to the site. I've seen it. So when I say like, "Hey, do you have this?" I already know you do. It's fantastic. I just want people to know how wonderful you guys are. And I, I mean, I think the best thing for people to do is to reach out to you guys uh, when they have these types of claims, be it a fire that has a mechanical or an electrical component, or some you know, or or something that you know maybe they're not even sure. Um, to get you guys together. And I mean, I know you guys come out together and work as a team as well, right? So if you need to have an electrical engineer while you're doing your piece, because it it involves the electrical, uh, maybe it's a component that's, um, you know, an industrial plant that's, that's caught on fire and you'll do the fire portion and somebody will deal with the electrical piece at the same time. Yeah, and, and, and looking at structural and, and the other things that we have too is kind of neat. And, you know, the OFM has these, but so do we. So we have a drone and we have uh, Adam 
who was one of our specialists, he can come to a scene for us. He came to one with a, a huge garage of like 13 garages, you know, and they'd uh, all sustained fire damage. And he was able to set up this like survey machine. You have a LIDAR and, machine. Yeah, it was amazing. And he was yeah. showing me some of the stuff this week that it can do. And I was just, you know, just blown away. Like he could take exact measurements of this, you know, from this point to this point, you know, it was just amazing, like, what he can do in support of a, an investigation. Yeah, so whoever hasn't listened to that podcast with Adam about the LiDAR machine, you need to go back and understand what LiDAR is. It is fantastic. <laughs> it is state-of-the-art. It has changed uh, accident investigation, um, just scene investigation in total. I mean, when I was doing accident investigation and dealing with the Toronto Police Service, their state of the art at the time was called um, Total Station, and it yes right. So I don't. I'm yes. sure you must remember that. Yes. Well, lidar lidar is Total Station on steroids on steroids. <laughs> well, uh, yes, that's it, it's yeah. it's to be it's something to behold and to see. It's amazing. I mean, it plots everything trees and grass and just everything in its place it's unbelievable and i mean i think that you know i forgot to even talk about that in this in fire investigation i mean lidar would be fantastic to actually on a large commercial or fire to actually plot that i know um a lot of people do the 3d um or the kind of the three-dimensional photos on a scene, but I, I think LIDAR would be even better. Yeah. Because it gives measurements. Yes. And, and those, like, we're, we're coming up the summer season, right? So you got a lot of these different uh, um, trades that are going to be doing certain things, you know, like roofing. Yeah, I was going to say hot uh, roof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's going to be major things happening. There's going to be some major explosions that are probably going to happen over the summer because, you know, the heat's coming. Um, you know, so that I think you know, having these different tools, you know, at my fingertips is very going to be very beneficial to me in, in our investigations. Yeah. Well, speaking of at your fingertips, how do we get to you? How do how do adjusters get to contact you? Um, is it best to just contact, you know, um, Randy or do, do you give out your personal information where people can call you, email you? Oh yeah, people can call anyone at Archon. Uh, you could go go on our the uh, Archon website, uh, you know, Archon uh, Forensics Engineering, and they list all the experts there. All our experts are listed right there. Um, or you can just call into our office, and you can talk to uh, you know Laura, uh, and you know she'll take the assignment, or or Randy. Anyone will take the assignment. Anyone will talk to you. I've I've had calls directly to me from an adjuster, and I take the information, send it off to uh, to Laura, and. Uh, great staff and they they get the ball rolling for you so um yeah you can call you know 416-491-2525 into our main office and they'll put you in contact with whoever you need to be uh, in contact with to support you with with your claim yeah and they're pretty good i i gotta say you guys are really great about handing out your cell phone numbers for you guys and you guys answer after hours as well i mean I'm not saying guys to call them at 10 o'clock at night for a, a small kitchen fire that can wait till the morning. But I mean, you guys are great about literally giving out your cell phone number and, you know, calling the adjuster or investigator, you know, on the insurance adjuster side uh, from the scene as well. And I, and I love that about you guys. You guys are really good. And it's, I, I find it's a really, really cohesive uh, investigation and it just makes things, you know, run really smoothly for the insurance side. Yeah, and and I I've been there for you know a short time, but in dealing with all the people that that work at Arcon, um, I'm very fortunate to be working with such a with such a group of, uh, of of expertise, and they're very diligent, and you can see how much they really like doing the work. Um, you can walk by someone's office and they'll pull you in. Hey, look what I'm working on. Oh, they'll ask you, what are you working on? Right. So we share um, information too. Like it's not a very big family, but it's a small family that talks to each other. Yeah. Uh, agreed. A hundred percent agreed. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know because I've, I've had you guys do stuff in the past and I start out with dealing with somebody and then it, you know, the information gets passed on because, 
it's not in their kind of bailiwick, but they want to have the right person give the right information that they can stand behind. And uh, I love that about you guys too. You don't guess. You get the right information for us. So that's uh, that's wonderful uh, from yeah. my standpoint. Now, let's talk lastly kind of about, you know, I've seen a lot of non-engineering people with a CFEI designation um, engaged in fire investigation. Is it better to have uh, a certified fire investigator or is it better to have an engineer with a fire investigation experience? Which one would you say, I mean, and again, this may be, a loaded question or it might be biased, but I mean, I, I'm just looking for the adjuster again. I mean, most of the senior adjusters know who to contact and they've got their, their people that they use on a regular basis. And that's why you guys, you know, as busy as you are, but I'm talking about the new people when they're listening to this podcast, they're going, Hey, I, I heard this word CFEI and, but this guy's a fire investigator and this guy's an engineer. What, what's kind of the basics? What should somebody look for in the basics? Yeah. So again, you're looking at, you're looking at the individual's credentials, right? So you're making sure that they, they've got the education. How long have they been in the business? Um, you know, for myself, uh, I would, I've been in the business for, you know, somewhat, you know, 20 years and, you know, learn my way. And it took about three years where it was really, really comfortable. And then during that time, you're, you're getting educated internally, externally, and you're developing those, those, those techniques that you need to be a very good fire investigator. So um, whether it's, you know, an engineer or someone who's got CF, uh, CFEI, as long as they've, they've got the credentials, yeah, um, they've they've got the education to to you know to back those credentials. Uh, they've got the experience. Uh, the adjustable get a really good feel as to the individual and how they're able to support them with regards to their to what they're they're looking for. Um, you know, myself, I would be pro CFEI because or a certified fire marshal investigator because those are the credentials that I have. Um, and so we're trained in interviewing people. We're trained in reading fire patterns. We're trained in, um, you know, gathering the data where, where I'm looking at an engineer, they're supporting my findings. I'm identifying what those potential ignition sources are, and I'm using their expertise to tell me whether or not they are. And then from there, I decide, you know, what, the, what caused the fire. But I'm just relying on an engineer to support me. So some engineers have have decided they want to get into the fire business world. So they're able to. So they've gone out, they've taken the training, and they've got the courses with regards to um, being a fire investigator. Uh, have they done the 1033? Have they gone out and and um, got the training, got the education with regards to fulfilling the requirements um, under 1033? Um, not all engineers like the fire, uh, uh, the fire scene. They want to support the fire investigator. Um, they really don't like the part where you have to go interview people, where you have to use that systematic approach, where you have to gather all the data. They'd rather support the fire investigator as opposed to being all encompassing and having to put everything together. Where that's where you get, that's what you get when you you, you know, hire someone who's got the CFEI designation. So it's a lot of time in the field, really. Yeah. So. Uh, that, that comes down. I think that's it in a nutshell. That's yeah, what it comes down to. I'd agree. Now, um, CVs, you're, you think it's a good thing to be adjusters, examiners, to be asking for a CV of their fire investigator or engineer so they can, you know, show that or confirm that they actually meet the right requirements? That's not a bad thing, right? No, that's never a bad thing. And, uh, you know, no one should, uh, you know, be, be worried about their CV. Um you know, you can go on pretty much uh, the website of any any company that's in the business, and it'll be showcasing the CVs of their experts in whatever um, uh, company that they're with. Um, I know we do that at Archon. So if you want to go at Archon, you can see uh, what credentials that each person was bringing to the table. So that's never a bad thing. I do believe if we're going to do a, a technical report, a full report, then we do include the CV at the end of our at our uh, our investigation with the report 
and uh, so that you can actually see there here's our credentials this is what we're going to we're going to be using in the event we have to go and uh, do some type of a civil process or maybe even a criminal process or you know something to do with with the court system because then you're going to be using that to you know potentially qualify as an expert witness right so then you want to make sure that that expert is going to be able to have those credentials uh, they have actually testified in proceedings. Um, so that's a little bit more that they're bringing to the table as opposed to someone who is new. Someone who is new is still good. As long as they're being mentored by somebody, then that's a good thing. Uh, you know, in our field at Archon, we can peer review each other's reports. So that's that's big in the process with regards to peer reviewing other people's work. So you want to make sure that that's kind of happening too. Um, so you're not like a lone wolf out there, you know, you're a one person investigator and here's my report and, uh, you know, I'm God and, you know, you know, <laughs> and you have to believe me because, you know, I wrote the report, no one else peer reviewed it, you know, so you got to, you got to look at that too. Is there a peer review process involved when these, uh, you know, fire investigators are, um, you know, putting their reports out there? So I know the fire marshal's office, we have a really good day. Oh, we can't say we have retired from there. A really good process. <laughs> <laughs> a really good process when it comes down to, you know, supporting your findings. Um, I was a manager and every fatal fire investigation report I signed off on. Um, and uh, there were times when we had a few things that had to be adjusted, right? But that's part of the peer review process. Um, as the between supervising and managing, I signed off on 807 reports. That's not plus the fire scenes that I went to on my own was like almost 400. So, you know, there's a so there's that background, there's that that component that you know an adjuster wants to look at as far as credentials go, just to make sure that the person that they're going to hire knows what they're doing. You know, that's you know, I think that's the short. Of it. They they really have to know what they're doing, and you should pick that up or pick that out of their CV. Perfect. I mean, I think that's the perfect way to end this, Mike. Um, it was great speaking with you. I have five fast facts that people need to know about you personally. So it's just, I'm going to ask you five quick questions. has nothing to do with fire investigation. And you just <laughs> tell me, what's your favorite thing to eat? Oh, my goodness. I would have to say cheesecake. All right. Favorite book you've read? Oh, my favorite book would have to be an outdoor magazine. Favorite involving drink? Oh, <laughs> outdoor magazine. Hunting. Hang on. Involving hunting? Hunting, absolutely. I hunt. Uh, You're a hunter? I try to go hunting every year. Hunting, fishing. I love the outdoors. Okay. Favorite drink? Uh, it have to be uh, martini next to a Guinness. No. Oh, a combo. <laughs> favorite movie you've watched? Oh, I love uh, all kinds of movies. Uh, what's the best one I've watched lately? Uh, um, anything to do with uh, Bruce Willis. I love all of his movies. Oh, yeah. um, Action packed. They've got to be, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so I like I like your action action films. Okay. Last one. Favorite place to go on vacation. Ah, oh, my daughters and my wife. We we went on a trip to Europe. And we spent uh, 23 days there, and we visited 11 countries. It's got to be the highlight of any vacation I've been on so far. Yes. Yes. And we, we were on a tour uh, with a, a bunch of other people, mostly from Australia. And we're still friends with those people today, and it's been like eight years. That's I awesome. Think, just on a trip, yeah. But my wife and I, we do like to travel. Um, COVID has kind of uh, put a hold on that. But uh, Absolutely. Yeah, we like going to different places, yeah. Yes. All right. And just as you said that, I know I've got my five facts and I'm just going to end things, but COVID with COVID, you guys are still going out on scenes. Yes. We still go out on scenes. We still ask questions with regards to safety. Uh, when we get to a scene, um, the guys are really good. The, the, the persons that I'm working with, everyone is still geared up wearing masks, uh, you know, fire scenes. They do have the potential, you know, hazard unfor unforeseen. You don't know what's actually there. So everybody masked up. So, uh, You're already wearing PPE safety. anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you have to. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Mike, very yeah. thank you very much for your time today. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, you've actually just on your way back from a fire scene. So I thank you for your time, and uh, I hope everybody finds this informative. And uh, again, thanks, and uh, we'll talk with you soon.
Yeah, Terry, it's been my pleasure. And uh, if anybody wants to call me about for investigations, uh, I'm intrigued. I love it. I'm really glad to be back where I am. And uh, I, I got a great people who support me. They let me do what I want to do. And uh, as do the adjusters, uh, I think I'm able to give them as much information as they need with it, you know, for what they need. So uh, thanks again for letting me be part of your uh, podcast, Terry. And uh, yeah, so I got about an hour and a half to get home. And I think something cold is waiting for me there. Excellent. It's a martini <laughs> with a Guinness, apparently. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Well, thanks and have a great night.